And open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. It ought to fall open there by now. Let me read through some scriptures here. It's this story, of course, of the woman at the well. We're not going to go back to the beginning of it. We're going to pick up here again in uh, verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. He's just told her things about herself that, that nobody else could know except supernaturally. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews worship in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And Jesus said to him, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. The hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. What we're talking about is learning what a true worshiper is and how to become a true worshiper. Because we've studied what verse 23 says in part, and we've gone back and we've seen that this is what the Father's longing for. He's He's not longing for more music. He's not longing for more clapping and excitement. He's longing for more worship. He's longing for true worship. Well, true worship implies that there's a worship that's not true worship. And in fact, what we've been learning is a lot of what we do, and it's not a criticism of us because we got a lot of company, is not worship, but it's praise, which is wonderful, it's valid. The Bible says a lot about praise. But if you don't understand what true worship is, we'll be satisfied with praise and we'll miss what he's calling us to. And that is where the real satisfaction comes. That is where the real communion and interaction with God takes place. It takes place in true worship. You can get goosebumps in praise. You can feel great, come out of church feeling inspired and feeling wonderful. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not worship. is an interaction with the living God. And you cannot interact with the living God and come away the same. You cannot interact with the living God and not have something good happen inside of you. Not come away without knowing Him better. And He's calling us to this because He desires this because we were made for the purpose of this. The ultimate purpose of your life and my life is to worship Him. Not sing songs to Him, that's part of it, but to worship, interact with Him in this communion. And we've seen... In verse 24, why this is, works, this only works this way. Because he says the true worshipers must, that means there's no other possible way, worship him in spirit and in truth. We'll talk about the truth a little later. We're focusing on worshiping him in spirit. What does that mean? There are all kinds of people out there with all kinds of ideas of what that means. And I suspect most of them are right in part. But we're looking at what the Bible says it means to worship in spirit and in truth. And the key, I believe, here is in verse 24, because he says you must worship him in spirit if it's true worship. And then he tells us in verse 24 why. Because God is spirit. And what we've been looking at is what does this mean? That God is spirit and therefore the only way we can worship him is spirit to spirit. And we've looked and studied that that what that's really our nature is a spirit. You have a body, that's what you got here today. You have a soul, which is your, your personality, your mind, your will, and your emotions. But the real essence of what you are is a spiritual being, a spirit being. 
The part of you that's eternal. Your soul's eternal too. But your spirit is the essence of who you are. It's your nature. And we've seen that until we came to Christ, we had a nature that was rebellious against God. It just wanted to do what it wanted to do. It was selfish. It wanted, you know, I have my rights. I have this. I have that. We were establishing our own kingdom, our own rights. I was reading in the beginning of Isaiah today. It's, it's just kind of my own worship time. And there's a verse in there, verses in there, which we'll probably talk about at some point. It says, basically saying, oxen and other animals are smarter than you. Because an oxen knows where his manger is. He knows where his feeding trough is. And the animals know who they're... A, a donkey knows his boss. But man doesn't know who made him. Man doesn't understand that everything we have, everything we have, has come from God. So we have the arrogance to think we've made things ourselves. We're self-made men and women with our rights and our privileges and our authority. And God looks at us and says, the ox is smarter than you are. He knows he can't supply his own needs. And so, worship is recognizing who God is. So, when we came to Christ, we see what happened is, God took that old nature, that old spirit out of you. And he put in you a brand new spirit, born of him, out of him. And that's what makes you a child of God. His spirit, his nature has now been conceived in you, born in you. That's how you became a child of God. So once you've come to Christ, once you've accepted personally Christ as your Savior, put your life into his hands to be your Lord, God makes this radical change in you. That old man died. You need to believe that. You need to believe that. That old man is dead. That's what baptism is about. It's recognizing he died with Christ, was buried with Christ, and a new person was raised from the dead. And that's their new nature, who you really are. You are a child of God if you've come to Christ. That new nature is born of God. And then we saw in Ezekiel where God said, not only that, but I've taken my own spirit, the Holy Spirit, and I put him in you. And we've seen that now communion... Prayer, relationship with God takes place, His Spirit to your Spirit, fused together. And so worship comes out of this union of His Spirit and your Spirit, and it has to be that. Why? Because God is Spirit. And in order to worship Him, to commune with Him, it has to be at His level, it has to be in His realm, which is the Spirit realm. And then we got into this idea that the Bible talks about a koinonia, which is a Greek word, which means to sometimes translated fellowship, sometimes translated communion, sometimes translated sharing. But they all mean the same thing. What it means is sharing something together, combined or joined together, and all that comes out of that joining together. And we've talked about experiences can change our relationships with people and how people that get stuck on an elevator for a period of time, it changes their relationship because they're no longer just strangers who got on that relation, that elevator. They now have gone through something together. And people that have gone through war together, especially in a combined, confined area like on ships or foxholes or somewhere where they've fought enemy and they've, they've saved each other and they've fed each other and they've, they've taken care of each other, it creates a bond together that nothing can ever separate. And what it was is they shared something in common. 
We talked last week about what happens when we come in here on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night. Just can't help with to talk to people. And just, you know, how are you? Good to see you. Blah, 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 blah. And people from all different backgrounds, all different races, all different kinds of uh, strata of life begin to come together and we're enjoying talking to one another. Why? Because what's joined us together is not what we look like on the outside. What's joined us together is not our education or our background, where we live. We're not all from it's right around here in Seekonk. We're from all over this area. What joins us together is the same spirit that's in you as in me. And we sense that commonality. We sense that and we call that fellowship. Which just means we're experiencing and enjoying that unity, that union that's already there. And then we began to look at, that's what worship is. It's enjoying. It's experiencing. That union that we have with God, spirit to spirit. And what we do, an expression, comes out of that union and out of that enjoyment. But what we focused on is what comes out of it and the enjoyment and not the union itself. And so we've looked at worship in terms of what we do and not what it really is. Everybody follow me? Because that's where we got to last week. And we ended by looking in Romans chapter 8. Verse one, verse twenty-six or so, where, where verse fifteen or sixteen, where Romans, where Paul says that the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Well, He's not in you. I used to think, well, I don't hear that in me. I don't hear Abba Father rising up in me. I don't hear that in me. Well, maybe I'm not. And then I begin to realize, well, wait a minute. Bearing witness doesn't mean He's talking to me about it. Bearing witness means his existence in there is a witness of the fact that I've been joined to Christ, that I belong to him. Ephesians 1.13 says that when you came to Christ and you believed, you were sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. That word sealed doesn't just mean shrink-wrapped or protected. It means branded, marked in the spirit realm. And I shared with you last week, if your eyes were open and you could just suddenly see this room full of spirit beings, you could tell Christians from non-Christians because the presence of the Spirit of God welded to your spirit is the proof. That's why the devil knows who belongs to God and who doesn't. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 4 around verse 16 says that since we regard Christ no longer according to the flesh... Why? We regard him as a spirit, the spirit of Christ that's in us. Then he goes on to say, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. So he's saying to us, we're not to regard each other according to the flesh anymore either. But we're to regard and evaluate one another, not by what we see on the outside, but who we are on the inside, which is we're all one spirit, part of his body. Now the perversion of this in the world is pantheism. Talked about that last year in, in the Connect Group lessons. It's a, well, God's in everything. It's Eastern religion. God's in this chair you're sitting on. God's in the floor. God's just everywhere. Well, God is everywhere, but he's not in chairs. <laughs> and what that does is it makes us tolerant of everything. To the point that in some countries, such as India, they're, they're starving to death. 
and the porterhouse steak is walking down the street in front of them, but they can't kill it because it's sacred because God may be living in that. So it's taken the pervert, it perverts this principle of unity. But what makes us one with each other and one with Christ is the Spirit of God that's in us, the Spirit of Christ. So that's what that koinonia is about. Last Sunday, as I was getting ready, done the lesson, got over, I was up in the morning just kind of going over things and praying, and the Spirit of God opened my eyes to another aspect of why it has to be in spirit. And that's what we're going to look at today. The second reason why in order to worship Him in truth, we must worship Him in spirit. So you're going to get to find this out who are here today. All right. (laughs) Okay, let's go to Isaiah Isaiah chapter 6. We'll learn more about this and this is what I'm about to tell you in a minute in, in, in the future. But I want to lay this foundation. Worship, and you've heard me say this before, there, there are three basic expressions that Psalms talks about to God. One is thanksgiving. The second is praise. And the third is worship. And they're three very different things, and actually there's an order to them, and we'll, we'll talk about that later, and there's a reason for that order. And I mention them to you because thanksgiving is something you can choose to do. It's an act of your will. We talked a little bit about that when I came up and greeted you with the weather we're having. We can still choose to be thankful, and we have much to be thankful for. So you can just choose whatever you want to be thankful. In fact, the Bible commands us to do it. Praise is acknowledging what God's done and, and honoring what God's done and justify, glorifying and, 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 and words, praising for God for what He's done. That you can do as an act of your will, which is why it is commanded. But worship is different than thanksgiving and praise because worship is a response that we give to seeing who God really is. It's a response to, to, to recognizing this union we have with Him. It's a response, a love response to recognizing the love that He's poured out on us. It's also a response when we recognize who He is in His glory and in His majesty. We're going to look here at a man, a man, Isaiah, a prophet, a good man, but still just a man like you and I, who was caught up into the throne room of God and got a glimpse of the throne room and got a glimpse of Him. And we're going to see what His reaction was. Did He walk in there the way so many of us walk into the presence of God? Just kind of strut in there? with his water bottle in his hand, you know, and, and I'm not talking about here, but I've been in places where it's just plain disrespectful. Just plain disrespectful of the presence of God, and as a result, 
His presence isn't there because he's not respected and honored. Let's read this. Now, there are already five chapters before this, so Isaiah is already operating as a prophet. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. That's important for what we're looking at. Sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train, or the, 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 the bottom of his robe, filled the temple. And above it, above the throne, were ser- stood seraphim, and each one... Don't try to picture this. I can, you, you can't. Above the stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. Not God's voice. The voice of the angels. And the house was full with smoke. Now stop there a second. I want to show you what's not happening. Isaiah's not brought into the throne room of God, and they've got screens like we have that tell us what to do and when to do it. They don't post words up there for everybody. Now everybody say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And now it's time to bow down. I was, used to, I was raised in a church that was like that. You had an order of service that told you when to stand, when to bow. You know, you kind of, somebody knew was kind of, what am I supposed to do? You, know, you don't want to do the wrong thing because you'll be stand, stand out literally in front of everybody. And all the focus is on what am I supposed to do? There's no focus here on what am I supposed to do. There's only one focus here. Wow. Who oh, is? And what I want you to see is what's going on in this image, in this vision, is a response to who they are seeing. They're seeing him with no limitations. They're seeing him with no veil, no restrictions, no filmy, glossy haze in between. They're seeing God in all of his majesty, in all of his holiness, in all of who he is, the essence of who he is, and they can't be quiet, and they can't sit still. What they're, what's coming out of their mouth, what they're physically doing, is an immediate response to the who He is and the fact that they're seeing who He is. That's what they had in the garden. That's what was lost with the rebellion and the fall. And we studied that. Well, Isaiah's brought into this. And look at his response. Verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I shouldn't be here, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And and Isaiah was a very righteous man. But compared to absolute holiness, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then an angel goes and takes a coal off of the altar and brings it and touches his mouth. And basically, this is his commissioning. Second Corinthians chapter 12, you don't need to turn there, but Paul talks about a man who obviously was him, who was brought up into the third heavens. He said, I don't know whether I was there physically or as I was there just, you know, in a vision, but I was in the spirit. And I saw things. And I heard things I can't utter. I can't find words to express. 
what an impact it had on the Apostle Paul. Let's go to Revelation chapter 4. We don't get many direct glimpses into heaven in the Bible. Very few. And I believe the reason for it is if we saw more, we'd get so distracted by that. And there are a lot of Christians that have done that in the past. That we'd be so heavenly, the expression is they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. We were left here for a reason. If all Jesus did was go to the cross so that we could get saved and not go to hell, this moment we're saved, he'd take us out of here because then we can't get any trouble. (laughs) And some of you know what I'm talking about. But he's left us here because there are others that need to be saved. He's left us here because there's a work that he wants to do. There's something God wants to do. This church exists because there's things God wants to do. This church doesn't exist so that I can have a job. This church doesn't exist so we can have a place to come on a snowy Sunday morning. This church doesn't have a place... And God will use all kinds of things to bless us and take care of us. But there's an ultimate purpose of why God dragged a man and a woman from Texas 35 years ago to establish this church, has preserved this church through all kinds of onslaughts, has blessed this church beyond measure, has done all kinds of things. It's here for a reason, and that's what my heart's cry is, God, what that is... I want to make sure we do it with all of our might by the power of your Spirit. And i got to tell you this. It's bigger than anything you've seen and it's bigger than anything I've seen. It's bigger than what you can see and it's bigger than what I can see. That's the sense I've got. That's the sense I've got. And i got to tell you, there's times that's what holds me in. God, everything, every reason I can think of, you know, to go south and stay there. <laughs> but you've, you've put us here for such a time as this. You've put us here, you've put this church here for such a time as this. By the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we will finish our course with joy. And we will accomplish what God has put us here to do. And you are a vital part of that. A vital part of that. So I believe one of the reasons there's not a lot in the Bible about heaven is because we get too distracted by it. But he gives us enough to encourage us, enough to motivate us, enough to give us a perspective that what we deal with every day is not what life is all about. Paul says in the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, he talks about how his success was. He says, because I, I, don't, I don't look anymore, I don't look at anymore at the things that are seen. I don't, those things don't move me, whether it snows or doesn't snow, whether I'm popular or not popular, whether the government likes me or doesn't like me, whether they're trying to persecute me or not trying to persecute me. He says, it doesn't matter because I don't, I don't go watching those things. I look at things that are not seen. Because the things that are seen are temporary. That snow is temporary. You know that. Things that are seen are temporary. It's the things that are not seen. The spirit realm, heaven, all the promises of God, those things are eternal. And he says, I've invested my life in what's eternal, not what's just temporary. And the question we need to ask ourselves, what are we investing our life in? What are we investing our time in? What are we investing our heart in? 
What are we investing our energy in? What are we investing in? Things that are temporary or things that are eternal? The Apostle John, the one who had his head on Jesus' chest in the Last Supper, and the one who, by his own testimony, loved him the most, and whom Jesus loved the most. John, at the end, when everybody else is gone, John's still here. He's on the Isle of Patmos. He has been banished because of his faith. To the Isle of Patmos, from what I understand in my studies, was not, he was not at a five-star Marriott resort. It was a penal colony. It was a rock where they, where, they, where they cut rocks out. And that's where they banished him. It said of the Apostle John that when he finally died, that his knees were so thickly calloused from kneeling on those rocks hour by hour and praying and being in communion with his God. And one of those days, it was the Lord's Day. It was the first day of the week. It was the Lord's Day. He was... Well, let's read it. Let's read his words. Revelation chapter 4. After those things, he had a vision of Jesus and he dictated some letters to the churches. Behold, after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open to heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me, saying, Come up here and I will show you things that must take place after this. And look at verse 2. And immediately, I was what? In the Spirit. Immediately, a voice tells, I want to call you and show you things. And immediately, I was in the Spirit. Because what he's about to be shown didn't exist on the Isle of Patmos. It didn't exist in the city of Rome. It didn't exist in the city of Athens. It didn't exist in the city of Corinth. It didn't exist in the city of Jerusalem. It didn't exist in any place on this earth that his physical eyes could see. God wanted to show him things that existed in a realm that his physical eyes were not capable of seeing, but he had eyes that could see the eyes of his inner man, of his spirit. And so in order to reveal these things to John, he has to bring him into the spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth because God is spirit. So in order to show him what God wants to show him, he has to get into the Spirit in order to see it. All right, you with me? Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, now he's in the Spirit and he can now see. Behold means see. A throne set in heaven, and one set on the throne, and he who sat there was like jasper and sergeant stardust stone in appearance and there was like a rainbow around the throne in the appearance of like an emerald understand this Paul says when I was brought up there I saw things and heard things I can't put into words you can have impressions of things dreams you ever dream you ever have a dream and you wake up and you go to tell somebody what it is and 
You just can't find the words to do it. In fact, the harder you try, the more it just kind of evaporates. Why? Because that dream was a series of impressions that you had. So real that maybe you almost swallowed your pillow. (laughs) So real that you woke up with your heart pounding faster and perspiring. We perspire in church. We sweat out there, right? Perspiring. uh, uh, Your body was reacting as if you were actually going through it because that impression was that real. But then you try to find human words to communicate what that was like, and you can't. Because what you experienced was beyond your natural vocabulary. Because that's the only way we have of communicating. When I'm preaching, very often things are going off in me, and my mind has to use my vocabulary, and my mind has to use the training that it has to organize thoughts to take those impressions and try to find words because the impression doesn't do you any good that I'm having inside of me. It's only when I find words to try to describe as accurately possible those impressions that you hear the words and your mind has to interpret them and try to find some experience you have that you can relate to those words so that we can share some commonality of what this impression is trying to communicate. Understand? The problem is when you see things that are beyond your experience that are heavenly, there's no words in the vocabulary. So what John is doing here is he's finding the closest words that he can to communicate what he saw. I say that because that doesn't mean the throne of God is filled with emeralds. I believe it's so much more glorious than emeralds, but the only thing he could find to give some idea is terms of of, of precious stones that he knew of. Okay. Let's go on. Around the throne were 24 elders. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. I don't believe it's lightnings. I think it's flashes of light. And thunderings and voices and seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Those are the seven aspects of the Spirit of God. If you look over in, in, in Isaiah 11, he talks about the different parts of the Spirit of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass. Again, I don't believe it's, it would have broken if you dropped a rock on it. It's, it's pure and like crystal. In the middle of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. I can't begin to imagine that. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like a calf. The third was like the face of a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And so they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits in the throne, He who lives forever, the twenty-four elders, fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship him who lies forever and ever, who lives forever and ever, casting their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Amen. Except they didn't get tired doing it. Again, there's no screens up there saying, This is what we sing now. Worthy, worthy, worthy is he to receive all glory and honor. They see him. Just a glimpse again. And it all pours out of them all over again. 
and the, the four, 24 elders fall off of their thrones down. The word worship here is a word that means to, to literally it means to kiss for, literally. And it implies getting down on your knees and bowing your head to the ground and kissing the object of what you're worshiping. They're doing this over and over and over. I used to read this. Didn't they ever get tired? Well, first of all, what gets tired is your physical body, not your spirit man. The more you worship, the more you're in communion with God, the stronger you get. Remember Moses who was in God's presence for 40 days and 40 nights? He didn't eat and he didn't drink and he came down more full of life than he went up there. In the presence of God, God is absolute life, the source of life. And what I want you to see here, the only thing I want you to see here is that their acts of worship were not something they did because they were supposed to or commanded. It was an immediate involuntary response to seeing who God is. And they're seeing Him in all, literally all His glory, literally with no limitations. Chapter 5 talks about it. goes on and talks about seeing this, the Lamb sitting on the throne. And when he taken out the scroll, verse 8, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, and it wasn't because the words were up on the screen. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals for you were slain and you've redeemed us to God by your blood for out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests unto God and we shall reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, living creatures and elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that in him I heard singing blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who lives on the throne to the lamb forever and ever. Amen. And the four living creatures said Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped Him who lives forever and ever. They couldn't help it. It was the direct, involuntary outpouring from their very essence of seeing who He is. Of seeing who He is. And last week as I was meditating on this, the Lord took me back to something Let's go to, um, let's go back to chapter, John chapter 4 for a moment. We've got time to do that. Now, let's go to 1 Corinthians 2. I'm sorry. I'm going to reorganize this a little bit here. I mean, you've, you hear me say this almost every Sunday, but I want you to see it. I don't have time to go into the background here, but it's, it's, someday I will because it's so powerful. First Corinthians 2, he's, he's talked about, Paul has talked about, because this was a Greek church. This was Corinth, which was, a, which was a, uh, one of the Roman uh, provincial cities. And they came out of pagan worship. And he talks about their background, and he talks about 
the because the Greeks believed, as our society is very much in this frame of mind, the Greeks believed that the things that were valid and were true were the things that your mind could understand and could express and could wrap your mind around and organize. And so we live in a world that exalts science to the point that science is the ultimate authority. And so because science says some things, they say the Bible's irrelevant because the Bible's not scientific. It's interesting because if you go back and study men of God who lived in the, in the beginning of the Great Enlightenment when these scientific things began to come out, such as John Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, the guy that discovered gravity, he was a devout Christian. Jonathan Edwards, president of Yale University, Jonathan Edwards was one of the leading thinkers of the Enlightenment, but he was also the father of the Second Great Awakening. They saw, they saw nothing inconsistent with science and the Bible. They didn't see a, have a problem with that. And these weren't dummies. These were smart men ahead of their times. They didn't see a problem with that. Why? Because they saw as the foundation, God's the creator. There is nothing inconsistent between the Bible and science unless you raise science to a level over the Bible. There's nothing inconsistent with them. But we've been brainwashed to think there is. We've been brainwashed by a philosophy that this world's adopted, which has behind it a spiritual motive to believe that if it's not scientific, it doesn't stand scientific analysis, it's not true. But we live with things all the time that don't stand up to scientific analysis. The proof of it is they're still discovering things. If they discovered something, they mean they didn't know about it yesterday. But it was still working and operating. When they find new planets and new stars out there, it's not suddenly everything gets changed. The universe doesn't reorient itself around. It's just that our scientists just found out something that's always been operating. I never taught this before this way. So if... The only things that exist are things that we can scientifically verify. What happened? Where did those planets come from? Where did those stars come from? They were already there without us having to figure out they were there. It's the arrogance of man to think, if I can't figure it out, if I can't understand it, it doesn't exist. Wow! Wow! And what they understand and what they figure out is wonderful, except 20 years from now they may change their mind about it. Because all the people that got behind Isaac Newton, when, when Einstein came along, it turned all that upside down. And so all they're doing is discovering things God's already created. And that's what, I didn't mean to get off into this. This is where the Corinthian church was. That's their background, and just like the background you and I have. And so chapter 1 and chapter 1, Paul talks about, that's wonderful when it comes to understanding how to put your recipe of your, you know, your, whatever you're making, or how to fix something. It's fine to rely on your natural human understanding and reason in your senses. Because the Greeks like wisdom. 
They want to understand philosophy and understand everything. The Jews, he said, they seek signs and miracles to believe. He says, but the gospel doesn't come either way. The gospel comes simply by believing. It comes by faith. So there are things that can only come from God, things that can only come from God, not by our mind understanding them, not by our seeing miracles, because a lot of people see miracles and they don't believe. They can help, but they don't make you believe. Jesus appeared to over 500 people after he was raised from the dead, and only 120 showed up on the mountain. If that doesn't do it, Because there's some that just wouldn't believe. But in chapter 2 says, but there is a wisdom. There is a wisdom for those who are mature. Those who have received Christ and received who He is by faith. Now that opens the door to a wisdom that you can't have until you've received Christ. And that's these verses now get into what I've talked about. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. But I, it is written, I has not seen and ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And you've heard me say this over and over again. I pray this almost every Sunday. There are things God has prepared for you and me that already exist. They exist, but they're, they're, they're spiritual things that exist. And you haven't seen them yet with these eyes. And you haven't seen them, heard it yet with these ears. You haven't yet even understood them with these hearts. But they exist. And they're in God to give to you. This is why you can't just walk by sight or you'll never see what God has for you. But God, verse 10, but God has revealed them to us through the Spirit. I want to talk to you for a moment about the word, what the word revealed means. Very important. Revealed means... Well, let me give you an example. I've learned by experience that when I come through here during the work week and the lights are out, to not walk by faith, but I need to walk by sight. There are places you need to walk by sight, like when you drive home today, drive by sight. There's a switch over there that if I touch it, it turns on the lights in here to a level. Well, a number of years ago, I had just come through, was doing something, and I didn't bother to do it. I said, I know my way. And I walked through here, and I went up that aisle, and it was revealed to me in a painful way that somebody had left something there because I walked right into it with my knee. Ooh, you know how that feels? Now, let me ask you a question. I forgot. I think it was the pulpit, this plastic, other plastic pulpit. When, 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 when did that get there? It got there whenever somebody put it there. It didn't get there when my knee hit it. My knee discovered something that was already there. If I had done what I was supposed to do and turned the lights on, that pulpit would have been revealed to my senses. So revealed means something already exists. It's just that you can't see it yet until the light is turned on. And when the light is turned on, now you can see what was already there for you. 
Now, I'm talking in this example about physical sight and physical things. But these verses are saying there are things that God has for you that your natural eyes cannot see, that your things God says to you, wants to say to you, that your natural ears can't hear and your natural heart or mind can't wrap around it. But that doesn't mean they don't exist. That doesn't mean they're not for you. God wants to show them to you. Verse 10, look at what verse 10 says. How do we know what turns the light on to the things that are in the spirit realm? But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, even the depths of God. For what knows the things of a man except the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God that's in him. But we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Why? One of the purposes we've received the Spirit that is from God is so we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Do you have any idea what your loving Heavenly Father has for you? The wisdom, the understanding, the the wisdom to avoid pitfalls and problems. The wisdom to enter into things that have blessings in them. The wisdom to deliver you, the power to deliver you from the things we sang about earlier. All that God has for us. The Bible says He's not holding anything back. Romans 8.32, one of my favorite verses, He who spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also freely with Him freely give us all things? James chapter 1, they talked about it on Wednesday night, says, if you lack wisdom, come and ask of God, who does not criticize you for asking, but gives generously. Generously. My God will do things for you that are exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you can think or ask. He's not holding back. Not only that, the verse says, the Spirit searches even the depths of the heart of God. He's got an assignment. He's got an assignment to go down into the basements of God's heart to find every possible thing that are in God's heart for you to have. He's got an assignment to do that. And He's faithful to do His part. That means he's brought up all kinds of things that God has for you, understandings, awarenesses. And it's the amazing thing is there may be something you already know, but now you know it at a different level. I was praying the other morning, and I just started speaking this out. Because I was praying about, you know, Lord, I just, you know, I want to be more committed. I want to do some things, you know, things we all want to do. Lord, I want to be more consecrated to you. I want, and all of a sudden, these words started coming out of my mouth. I know the words. I know the scriptures. I've preached them for years. The words that came out of my mouth is the old man died. Me. And when the old man died, a new man was born in you. But when I saw it, I saw it at a different level than I'd ever seen it before. I saw it at a different level of reality and it impacted me at that time. It wasn't just words. It wasn't just a concept. It became a reality to me at another level. Wait a minute. I can walk in victory in areas. I can, I can do things that I don't, didn't think I could do. Why? Because that old man that I've been bragging around with, he's dead. But my point is, I saw that at another level. Almost everything I teach you, I didn't get from reading some other book other than the Bible. 
Almost everything I get, I get because there are things God shows me in prayer and in study and in meditation. I like that much better. It's, it's fresh bread, hot from the oven. Somebody says, why do you get so excited? Because I'm seeing it on the inside. God's Spirit is illuminating things, showing them to me. I get so excited when I see them. And I get the privilege of describing what I see to you. I want, I'm showing that to you because there's a reason for this. This is what Paul is saying here. Hmm. Verse 13, But the things which we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, which is what we spend so much time listening to, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual with spiritual. But the natural man, some translations say the carnal man, that may be talking about somebody that's not saved, it's also talking about somebody that's saved, but they're not doing anything by the Spirit, they're not in touch with the Spirit, they're not filled with the Spirit. This is why it's so important to be filled with the Spirit. Because when you're not filled with the Spirit, you're dealing with spiritual things through the mind as concepts, as theology, as ideas, as principles. And those are okay, and they're fine, but they're not the deep things of God. They're not the power of God. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually Discern. This is why it's so foolish for a Christian to get on commercial TV and try to explain to that reporter the things of God and expect them to get it. We were never called or commissioned to explain the gospel. I teach it to you because you're almost all of you are saved so that we can grow in an understanding of it. That's what he says. But the mature, there is a wisdom for the mature. That's what we're learning together. But the threshold into it doesn't come by understanding, doesn't come by figuring it out. It comes by faith, receiving it just because God says so. And that's the doorway into this where we can begin to get understanding but until you've got the Spirit of God inside of you, you can't possibly understand things of the Spirit because it takes the Spirit of God to turn the light on so you can see them. That's what he's talking about here. That's the reason why we're going through all this. Verse 15. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he, is, he himself is rightly judged by no one other than by God. For who has known the mind of the Lord that we may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? Now, here's my point. If that's true about the things that are in God's heart that he has for us, that the only way we can know them and receive them is as the Holy Spirit who searches God's heart, who lives in you, reveals them to your spirit, if that's true about the things hidden in God's heart that he has for you, this is what he showed me last week, is it not also true that it takes the same Holy Spirit to show us what God himself is like? 
Because I describe to you as best I can, God is absolute holiness. God is absolute majesty. We read through those scriptures we went through in Isaiah and in Revelation and talks about the glory and the majesty of God. And we read those things and those are concepts that our mind tries to figure out. And what is the glory of God? What is the majesty of God? What? But they didn't go through an analysis. They saw him and hit their face. They saw him and worship poured out of them. They couldn't do anything else because they didn't see him with eyes like this. They didn't hear his voice with ears like this. They saw him spirit to spirit. And you and I can't do that living in this flesh by our flesh. You and I can't do this with our mind going over the words. You and I can't do that. It takes some representative of God, someone that lives inside of God, that knows his glory, knows his power, knows his majesty, knows his holiness, to connect, not in the mind, to connect impression to impression, connect spirit to spirit, Boom, like that. And when that goes off in you, you react like the 24 elders. You don't know why. Your mind doesn't understand. It doesn't matter. It just begins to rise up in you. begins to pour out of you. You can't help it because it's not coming from your mind. It's not coming from your flesh. It's coming from your spirit who's been ignited and lit up by the Holy Spirit. I'm told when they do brain surgery, one of the ways that they find out that they got the right place is they, they open the top of your head. And then they touch something with an electrode. Now, some of you may know better than I do. And when they do, they see it, whatever that's supposed to control, they see it react. (laughs) Whatever, you know, the idea. Why? The word they use is it excites it. It energizes it. That electrical, that electric probe touches that part of the brain that functions by electricity and triggers it instead of something else in your body triggering it. And this is the power of God from the depths of God's nature. The holy electrode activating and enlivening your spirit. So I had to put your spirit, uh, His spirit in you. I mean, a spirit in you that was like the Holy Spirit so that you could, it was compatible to be activated. Paul talks about this when he talks about the gifts of the Spirit over in 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and then again in chapter 14 he talks about certain gifts he talks about praying in tongues and worshiping in tongues and he said when my spirit prays my mind is unfruitful Your, my mind doesn't like to be unfruitful my mind's nosy it wants to know what's going on what's this all about this was the whole challenge I had to praying in the Spirit to begin with. It would just choke up in here because my mind had to control. It had to understand everything I said and everything I heard. And that was my block that I had. And, 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 and so when you pray in the Spirit, your mind doesn't know what you're praying because he says you're praying mysteries to God. Your Spirit's communing directly with His Spirit. And it circumvents your mind, which many times needs to be circumvented. It energizes your spirit. It's in communion. Communion. So the second major reason why why we have to worship in spirit is because worship is a response to seeing who God is. 
and you can't see who he is with your mind. You can't see who he really is with your eyes. You can only see who he really is by your spirit when his spirit communicates to your spirit some aspect of him. Go with me to Joel chapter 2 and we'll end there. Well, we'll go where it says. Joel chapter 2. The prophet Joel foretelling the day that you and I were to live in. Verse, chapter 2, verse 28. It shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my... I will pour out my... I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Things are going to begin to operate from the king, from the spirit of God, from this realm where God lives, and it can only happen because I pour out my spirit on all flesh. And I will also, on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now go with me to Acts chapter two. We're going to see the fulfillment of this. What's happened, of course, in the beginning of Acts chapter 2 is exactly that. God poured His Spirit out on the day of Pentecost. It didn't say they were all filled. The place where they were was filled. And they began to speak with other tongues and they poured out into the streets and it created a tremendous commotion. And what's happened is it drew a crowd. This is the Holy Ghost advertising. He has his own method of advertising. A lot less expensive. And what happened is they gather around and they're thinking they're having this big discussion. These guys are drunk. How can dare they be drunk? At this time of day at least. And others mocking say they're full of new wine. Chapter 2 verse 14. But Peter standing up with the eleven raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day. But this was what was prophesied, spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says the Lord, I will pour out my flesh on all, my spirit on all flesh. So if that day when Peter preached was part of the last days when he would pour his spirit out, how much more is today? And your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in these days. And then he goes on down and says, what happens now is there's a great revival takes place. There's a great revival takes place. The spirit is poured out and supernatural things begin to happen. Because they are now connected to the power of God without restriction. If the Spirit of God was sent to reveal things that God has for us, how much more has He been given to us to reveal who God is? In John 16, Jesus talking about sending the Spirit says, when He comes, He will speak of me, and he will come to give glory to me. The Holy Spirit only ever 
glorifies Christ. He never glorifies man. He always glorifies Christ, and Christ lived to glorify the Father. To glorify means to reveal who He really is. So those who worship Him must worship Him. Must. That word's so strong. There's no other way. Must worship Him in spirit and in truth. In spirit. Why? Because God is a spirit. And the only way we can know Him and respond to who He really is, not by a concept not by our mind, not with pictures that we have on the walls. You notice we don't have a bunch of pictures of Jesus around here because none of us know what he looked like in the flesh. And Paul says we don't know him according to the flesh anymore. Now, you don't need to rush home and throw out your pictures of Jesus. But understand, even if that's an exact likeness of him, that's not him. And we're not to know Him according to what we physically see, but we're to know Him spirit to spirit. And for that reason, God took His spirit and put His spirit in you to be fused together with your spirit so that the Holy Spirit can give you impressions, insights, understandings, not with your mind, understandings so that your spirit will begin to respond to His and that is worship, spirit to spirit. For such the Father longs, longs to have that deep yearning in his heart satisfied that only you and I can satisfy. And he gave you his spirit so that you could give back to him what he wants. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe of you today. As we take your word and see things we may have never seen in it before, as a demonstration of your spirit in what he's been given to us to do, to reveal things to us that you have for us. But Father, the greatest thing we need to know is who you are in all your glory and all your majesty. Lord, our minds can't contain it and our bodies can't contain it, but our spirits can. And so we're coming to you this morning and asking you by your precious Holy Spirit that you would do what you've been, he's been sent to do, that he would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would truly see the hope of his calling for our life that is in Christ Jesus. And for that grace, we thank you. In Jesus' name.